We're going to find our way eventually to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, if you want to thumb your way there, if you have a physical Bible with you, if you have your device with you and you're using that for your scriptures today. But to understand today's message, to best understand today's message, if you haven't heard the previous two messages, it would serve you well to listen to those after today's message. In this series of sermons, it's been very intentional in the way some things have built their way as we're going along. The first three, we really kind of talked about our hearts and about turning this inward curve outward. The last three sermons, including this morning, are about that place of turning outward and engaging. If you remember, we started with who do we let sit on our bench? Next week, we're going to ask the question, why we need to keep Christianity weird, all right? So just so you know ahead of time that you're weird. You know, you should be weird. If you're a Christian, you should be weird. We'll talk about that. That's right. If you're not weird, you're weird. Very well said. But let's start today with a quote from an African Christian. The way of following Jesus starts first with humility. The second with humility. The third with humility. The man that many know as St. Augustine or Augustine was from the coast of North Africa. He was from what is present-day Algeria. And I love these words from him. The way of following Jesus starts with humility. To understand what I'm going to share with you today, I'd like to share with you the story, the events that tipped me over to this sermon. I knew I was going to be preaching this message weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and then something happened that tipped me over. These pictures, though they're hard to see, and maybe our ushers can just dim these upper lights right here. We'll see the lights might go on and off here, but you can see them a little better. It's kind of hard because I took them from video, so I tried to capture some stills from them, but this is Eastern Nazarene College, and recently they sought to be Jesus by partnering with Bay State Services, becoming a welcoming center that would provide shelter to refugees and immigrants, all here legally and with documentation, seeking asylum. So ENC opened unused dorm space to provide shelter and began sheltering Haitian refugees who were fleeing intense violence and dangerous political turmoil in their own country. And predominantly in those dorms was and is and currently families with young children. But on September 9th, the day before we formally installed Pastor Leo, that night... I got a text 
from a student who sent me videos, who asked me to pray. Because what you see here are pictures of a neo-Nazi group, an anti-immigrant hate group, that held the demonstration outside of that dorm shelter. This group is known for traveling throughout New England, and they stood outside the dorms, where there were women, children, and families sheltered. They stood with torches. They wore black masks. And they shouted racist and xenophobic comments like, Whose streets? Our streets. Whose streets? White streets. Some of our college's basketball players were coming back from the gym going to the dorm and they were threatened by this group because they were black. One man approached the police with a mask, not respecting the policeman at all, and he said, these people are invaders. I want to, want to remind you something of last week's message. It's, it's when we can assign labels, names, different things to people like that, that they become less than human, and therefore it's easier to dehumanize them, and therefore it's easier to treat them less humanly. Needless to say, this left the refugees and the ENC wider um, black and people of color population, fearful, unnerved, unsafe. A few days proceeded from that, and I thought two things. The first thing I thought was this. That group was big and loud. That one gentleman that went up to the, well, that's not a fair, that's not an accurate statement. Gentleman. Not a gentleman. At all. That one bully who walked up to that police officer was big, the big guy. He was loud. And I thought to myself, they're actually small and weak and cowardly. But then after a few days, the other thought, these two thoughts came to me. The other thought was this. The hate-filled efforts, all they did was galvanize the Christ-like love. And this is what happened. ENC students and people from the local community, because that group wasn't even from the neighborhood or Quincy, or from far outside. ENC students and the local community responded to this with a movement of love. The campus gathered together to pray for the families, and, and the students and the community around ENC placed signs of welcome in Haitian Creole around the campus and did other things to make these families children, like your children, women, like your wives and your mothers and your sisters, Men, like your brothers and your husbands and your fathers, feel loved and welcomed. And that tipped me over. I've been thinking about this a long time. 
Because you see, here's why we have to think about this. Unfortunately, we have allowed conversations around xenophobia, the fear of foreigners, in essence, and racism and prejudice to be co-opted and reduced to sound bites. And the political battle lines end to conversations about my rights. When I say words like woke or critical race theory or Black Lives Matter or systemic racism, I have a question. What's happening inside you right now? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? How are you feeling already? Are you feeling uncomfortable? I'm uncomfortable. I'm a little uncomfortable preaching this message because, you know, here's my challenge. I'm a white man who doesn't fully understand. The way of following Jesus starts with Humility. For many Americans, many white Americans, including white Christians, those words I just said to you have become fighting words. Internally or verbally, and especially through social media. And what we do, we hear those words and we go into our respective political corners and we come out fighting. And we try to prove our position or we try to defend our right or we try to do these different things. But I have a question for us from the bench. Is that what Jesus calls us to? Or is that what my preferred media outlet disciples me to be? Pray with me. Lord, we come to you today and all we desire is to actually fulfill the song we sang. That we would never be the same again. Not by something that even I say or that we do, but what your Holy Spirit does. So help us these moments to be open and receptive to the Spirit of God. Help us to pull down our defenses and help us to hear you today as you fill us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I realized I did not understand. It was shortly after the murder of George Floyd. And after that, I desired to have honest conversations with black friends and colleagues, pastors. And there were some words that kept coming to my mind, words that you should be pretty familiar with now in the last three weeks, but go ahead and let's put James 1 up there. Say them with me. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 
And those words just began to attach themselves to my soul after May 25th of 2020. The place where I realized how little I understood was not in reading a book. I love to read, but it wasn't in reading a book. It wasn't in watching cable news. It wasn't in following some toxic social media string. I realized I did not understand as I was sitting on my front porch. You see, I had been developing a relationship with a young black Christian leader, not because he's black, but because he was doing good work trying to reach young adults in our local college campuses. So after George Floyd's murder and his now famous last words, I can't breathe, which we should not forget, I asked this young man if he would meet with me. I also emailed black ministry colleagues and I asked for their thoughts. I did not want to know the facts of May 25th. I kind of knew them already. We all knew them. I wanted to understand what I didn't understand about being black in my world. I realized there was much I did not understand because it was easy for me to make racism and xenophobia an intellectual exercise. I'm a reader. I would read about it. It was easy for me to make it a media-driven opinion intended to sell product, which is the goal and the purpose of most news stations today. It was easy for me to make it a theological conversation. I'm a backyard theologian. I'm a pastor. But sitting on my porch, see, I was no longer afforded that. We'll come back to the conversations later. Let's take a seat on the bench today. And you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe who Jesus is sitting with today. In fact, in his day, I think someone would have said this about Jesus. You know that guy Jesus? He is just too woke. Context matters when we read the Bible. We always need to remember that. Right before the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is where we're going to go today, Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, right before that, Jesus sends his disciples into the world. And they have amazing results. They come back, they talk about what's going on. But before he sends them, Jesus says that two cities where they would be going, Judea primarily, two cities in Israel would be harshly judged for their rejection of Jesus. But then he also says two cities, Tyre and Sidon, if they saw the same things, that they would be receptive to him. Those were two sworn enemy cities. Maybe still are. 12 miles north of the Lebanese-Israeli border. 
you know what follows. An expert in the Hebrew law comes to Jesus and he tests Jesus with two questions. The first question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In turn, Jesus asks a question back. He says, you know the law, come on. I love what he asks him. How do you read it? Let's pick it up there where we hear the leader's response. That expert in the Hebrew law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Bingo! Do this and you will live. But now here's question number two from the leader. But he wanted to justify himself. Hold on to that statement. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells the parable. And Jesus tells a parable that completely redraws the social map of his hearers. Because the Samaritans were the marginalized minority. The Samaritans were worth subhuman treatment because of their ethnicity, their mixed race. They were Assyrians and Jews. And their nationality, as well as their religious practices. But there's something we need to see in his question and Michelle Barnwell helps me. She says, the lawyer's question implies that he thinks there is such a thing as a non-neighbor someone to whom he does not need to extend mercy and compassion. And it caused me to ask this question, do I think there is such a thing as a non-neighbor? You see what Jesus does? Jesus exposes the prejudice in this man's life. Watch what happens. It's fascinating and very instructive. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? That's Jesus' next question. And the man answers. Look at the man's answer. Next slide. Look at his answer closely. Because what you see is that the man can't even bring himself to say. The Samaritan did. Yeah, the one who, you know, cared for that guy. But I think there's another question underneath this that this parable raises. Re remember the behavior of the priest and the Levite? If you, if you know the whole parable, parable of the Samaritan, before, before the, the Samaritan got there, the, the priest and the Levite came by, and they, they came by and they saw the guy. They went, nope, nope, not today. And they went around him. My guess is they probably did this. Or in their head, they were thinking, unclean, unclean, unclean. Why? 
Why? You see, I think this is the question Jesus is really asking. What are you afraid of? Dan Boone writes, I don't know why they kept going. I suspect it has something to do with the fact that if we keep our distance, it is easier to walk on by. A hasty exit solves lots of obligations. If we keep our distance, then you know, nothing more is going to be asked of me. If we keep our distance, then I don't have to do anything about it. If I can keep my distance, if you remember in last week's message, we talked about how when we dehumanize someone, we get distance from their humanity. And when I get distance from their humanity, I don't have to do anything about their problem. So I asked myself another question. Jeff, what are you afraid of when it comes to the other? Whoever is the other that I think. I pondered that question this week. It's hard for us to see it here, but do you see what Jesus is doing? He's loving this man. This is what the gospel does. If we're going to be real about the gospel, this is what the gospel really does. John records it in 1 John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Racism and prejudice come from fear. And I'll come back to this. I think an unwillingness to own the worst parts of our history comes from fear. To say, yes, our country perpetrated the horrors of slavery. Yes, our country at the highest levels of land enacted racist Jim Crow laws. and murdered image bearers, many, yes. But when we make those kind of statements, yes, our country did this, but it minimizes, it avoids. It justifies. Remember what the religious leader asked? He asked, who's my neighbor? But before that, this is what Luke captures, but he wanted to justify himself. And why is that important? Well, Stephen Fine and Stephen Spencer write, prejudice and negative evaluations often come from our need to maintain high feelings of self-worth. Prejudice and negative evaluations often come from our own desire or need to justify ourselves. So sitting on the bench today, Jesus directs my heart and mind to remember some things. Do you know the first great revival in the New Testament was in the Samaritan village? John chapter 4. Among the most marginalized, 
Do you know that beautiful story we like to pull out at Thanksgiving about the lepers who are healed and only one comes back? The only one who came back was from, you guessed it, the marginalized minority. He was a Samaritan. Luke 17, 17. We celebrate Pentecost after Easter, 50 days after. Celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. But Pentecost was multicultural and global. That's the actual miracle of tongues, is promoting the gospel across multicultural and multilingual languages. There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under the heavens. Addressing the issue of the multicultural church and the multicultural gospel, Galatians says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then there's one thing pretty clear. I had a great conversation with one of my medical providers this week. They asked about, they know what I do, and they asked, how's it going? (laughs) What a question to ask in these days, huh? Good thing she wasn't taking my blood pressure at that point, right? (laughs) How's it going, Jeff? (laughs) How's your job? She asked me that every time. And I felt this tapping of the Holy Spirit to talk to her about the hope that I have as a Christian that Jesus is going to make all things right. Amen? I want you to hold on to that. In this world of ours that seems so unhinged, the truth is we, believe, we live in a future time zone where we believe that, yes, Jesus is going to make all things right. It doesn't look like it most days. But we see these glimpses of the goodness of God in the land of the living, even when the land of the living is not so good. But what what is that going to look like? Well... When things are made right, we will be arm-in-arm with more people who are not like us than those who are. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language staring before the throne and before the Lamb. As Christina Cleveland writes, it's time for us to discover our true identities as members of the family of God, to rally around this identity, overcome our divisions, and change the world. It's time to change the way we see ourselves, that we are the people of God. The Bible says it all the time. Next next week, I'm going to remind you all that you're you're all actually um, foreigners, if you're a follower of Jesus what the Bible says, that we're different people and we're intended to be a different people. Now, let me be clear. I want to be very clear. We live in a great country. I want you to hear that from me. America is a great nation, but I have a question. How do you define greatness? What does greatness mean? Jesus said that greatness was in serving. The Apostle Peter 
said that humility was the path to greatness. These words from Peter, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. The truth is that the greatness of our nation is not determined by always focusing on our best selves or our greatest accomplishments or how wonderful we are. Greatness, true greatness, is willing to be honest and look at our worst selves and seek to become the best selves God wants. And I think that's what Jesus is up to in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what Jesus is doing with this parable. He is leading this man to look at his worst self. He's exposing this man to his worst self. And he's revealing to him what it means to be his best self in God. And so, yes, greatness is the willingness we have to look at the worst things about ourselves, not to hide them, not to deny them, not to excuse them, not to be defensive about them, but to confess them, becoming the person and the people God desires as the church. I don't understand why there's so much controversy around things like corporate confession, especially as it relates to the history of our country. I don't get it. Here's why I don't get it. If you look back in Scripture, go with me back to Nehemiah in chapter 9. Actually, Nehemiah starts it in chapter 1, but go back to chapter 9, and something amazing happens. The people are gathering to worship God. They now rediscover the Word of God. They're, they're, they're celebrating. They're praising God. They're lifting up their hearts to God, and they're reading from the Word of God, and this is what it leads them to. Nehemiah 9, verse 2. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. After declaring God's faithfulness and goodness, the leaders led them in confessing the sinful history of their forefathers and their mother, foremothers. Verse 33, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Were they confessing individually? Absolutely. Because they were not the best people then. But were they only confessing individually? Because you see, they were not present for the unfaithfulness of their forefathers. They were not around when their forefathers sinned. They were not there when the golden calf was paraded out. But they recognized the generational and historical reality and impact of the sin of their forefathers. Now, we need to confess personally and individually. Don't forget that. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel, amen? Right? That's the gospel. But let's not make our faith so individualistic, which is what we tend to do in the Western world. We make it about us. It's all about us, about 
you know, taking care of my own soul? Does the worship music work for me? Is it what I want it all to be? It's all about us. And I thank God for Rick Warren in the beginning of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. His first words are, it's not about you. (laughs) So let's not make our faith so individualistic that we forget we are part of a larger picture and people and history, and we acknowledge and confess the history of sin in the church and our country and even the ways I have benefited, you have benefited, we have benefited from the sins of our forefathers. This is part of the path of humility. The way of following Jesus starts first with humility, then second with humility, and then third with humility. That other anchor verse for us is Proverbs 18, and I love the way the message paraphrases it. Pride first, then the crash, but humility is precursor to honor. Answering before listening is both stupid and rude. (laughs) Anyone, no one's allowed to use those words, all right? It's in this paraphrase, but you can't use those words. So, it was on my front porch when I realized I did not understand. It was in emails and conversations when I realized I needed to listen more. The pain for many people of color reveals a lifetime of experience that I don't have. One black colleague of mine, a great pastor, faithful pastor, said that after George Floyd was murdered, they were thrust back into the fear of their childhood in the 60s and the 70s. I was playing baseball in Succasona, New Jersey, in a very safe environment. See, that's not my history. So I struggle to understand. But it's a history that needs to be listened to. Help me to listen, God. Help me to listen to the toll of systemic racism that has been taken on human lives. And some of us say, well, I don't want to talk about systemic racism. There's no such thing as systemic racism. Then I invite you to read a book called The World's Fastest Man. It's about a guy by the name of Major Thomas. He was a cyclist. He was a black cyclist at the end of the 19th century. And let me tell you, it was, he was systemically prevented from being the best cyclist in the world. He eventually became that. It has nothing to do with the Bible or God. Or I appreciate the fact that some pastors stood up and said cycling was a really good way to practice the Sabbath. But there has been some systemic racism that hasn't inflicted my life, but that doesn't make it any less real. Help me to listen to the fear an African-American family grows up with, fears that were no such part of my family life. Help me to listen, to really listen before I judge the anger that springs from injustice and inequity. Injustice is an inequity I don't have to face. 
I walk down the street without any thought to my safety. I don't even think twice. I did not have to be concerned with my children growing up absent of privileges that I and they took for granted. So, Lord, help me to listen. Not to judge. Not to defend. And even as I speak these words, you need to know they weigh on my own heart and life. So don't worry, I'm not pointing a finger, I'm pointing a thumb back at me. Now I need to make a confession to you. I confess I've received some traffic tickets. Um, but let me clarify a very few. Okay, I think maybe one there, one there, I think three. The funniest one was I was a, I was a young pastor, first, congregate, first church we were in, and we were driving south to visit my family, and at the time, the, the, the speed on Route 87 south from Keysville, New York, was 55, and I'm driving, and I'm flying. No, we were coming back, that's right, and I'm going a whole, like, 65. And this state trooper, New York state trooper, I saw the blue car, he pulls me over, he comes up, and I just said, and my kids are in the back, they're going... They're going to take Bobby to jail. Police officer comes up, and I said, Officer, your kids think I'm gonna take, you're going to take me to jail. And he looks at me. He doesn't crack a smile. He's as serious as can be. He goes, hmm, license and registration, please. In those few instances I was pulled over by police, never once did I find myself afraid for my life because of the color of my skin. But that fear is real for others. When my son was 10 years old, we had the talk. You know, the talk. The birds and bees talk. And it was awkward. But that's not the talk that my young friend who sat with me on my porch told me about. He was 14 at the time. What is it like to have your father talk to you as a 14-year-old, to have the talk? Son, make sure you roll down your windows when the police officer's coming, even if it's winter. Put your hands where they are visible. Do everything you can to present yourself in a non-threatening way. Don't make any sudden movements so that you don't get hurt. My father, who was a policeman, part-time policeman, never had to give me that talk. He didn't give me the talk of the birds and bees either, but. And I didn't have to give that to Keith Allen. What am I saying today? What is the bench saying to us? What is, what is our Savior saying to us today? I think John Ortberg captures it. I can't do everything, but I must do something. Each person who persistently calls racism to account makes it a little harder for racism to survive. 
These are complex topics. I get that. But I have grown weary of them being co-opted and leveraged, primarily for political gain. Because these are topics about people. Let's make it harder, my friends, for racism and bigotry and prejudice and xenophobia of all types. Let's make it harder for it to survive. And to do so, I and we need to listen. How are you feeling today in this church service, this message? Are you uncomfortable? Are you angry? Are you feeling defensive? Well, here's what I want to invite you to do along with me. Listen. What is God inviting me to? Not what Pastor Jeff is inviting me to. Don't worry about that. What is God inviting me to? What am I being invited to in the midst of all this? Let's just not politicize it or sensationalize it or editorialize it and every time we do it and it's the issue we keep it and we keep people at a distance and whenever we distance people and distance ourselves from their humanity well we found out last week that can lead to awful things. So what is God inviting me to do? Because here's the really good news. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of, except one thing. And that's forgetting who Jesus said is our neighbor. So Lord, May I be quick to listen, slow to speak. Gets me in trouble all the time. Slow to become angry. For that kind of anger does not, does not reveal God's righteousness. Would you please stand?